All right. Welcome back to the Queer QE. And thank you for sticking with us till the end of this season of our podcast. In our final episode, we will be traveling back to the 70s in the United Kingdom with the influential filmmaker for Black queers in new queer cinema, Isaac Julian. Today, we will be looking at Julian's first feature narrative film, Young Soul Rebels. A brother that got killed in the park. He was what you call an anti-man, a batty boy. That make it all right now. You concerned about who did it now? So Young Soul Rebels takes place in 1977 London, during the week of Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, an event commemorating the Queen's 25th anniversary of her accession to the throne. The film follows two soul funkadelic pirated radio DJs, Chris, played by Valentine Noniella, and Kaz Mo Sose, navigating the aftermath of the death of a mutual friend, TJ. While the film interweaves varying plots such as romantic subplots or Chris and Kaz's buddy relationship, the central plot of the film surrounding the murder of TJ addresses the heightened time of racism and homophobia during the late 70s. Hence the event, Funk the Jubilee, or the punk perspective, Fuck the Jubilee. While the film is described as a coming-of-age thriller, looking at it today, we can also describe it as a a revolutionary film of Black queer resistance against an unjust government and society teeming with racism and homophobia. Although I do not feel equipped that either of us provide an in-depth historical context on this period of time, because we're not from the UK or we're not born um, in this era at all, um, I think Isaac Julian certainly does by giving us a really magnified look of 1977 London. Young Soul Rebels eerily captures the overt racism faced in 1977 and even holds a mirror to how our society in America still looks today. And I agree, neither of us have a really great understanding of British culture and politics of the time, but a lot of the same themes that we've had in our previous discussions of new queer cinema films, as well as those that have been sorely left out of those prominent new queer cinema films, um, were very involved in this film. And so a lot of those same issues that were faced by Chris, Kaz, and Billy are the ones that are still sadly still prominent today, especially here in the United States. Um, Throughout the film, we can compare the fascist national front portrayed by the various skinheads to the Proud Boys of America. Billy and his representation of the socialist workers is very much comparable to an Antifa ideology. The overt racism faced by Chris and Kaz, especially the criminalization by police towards Chris and the gatekeeping by white gays towards Kaz, is an atrocity that is constantly faced here in the United States. Comparing the British Young Soul Rebels to the previous American New Queer Cinema films we've discussed, it's clear the missing themes from those films is the Black queer experience. I love this film and Isaac Julian's work because of providing New Queer Cinema with queer outrage that was not solely about AIDS and the anger of how society treated the queer community, but for how society has treated the Black community and the intersection of Blackness and queerness. So I'm excited to move on and kind of go over a lot of the really central, important Mm. scenes of Young Soul Rebels. Yeah, so the opening scene of the film is really interesting to me. And, you know, I think it really sets the mood for what we're getting into because it starts off with this kind of this radio station opening, right? Um. So the opening credits plays over an intermix of music from the 70s. Parliament's P-Funk wants to get funked up. The Blackbirds, Rock Creek Park, and the punk band X-Ray spec song Identity. You know, we see Julian um, bringing in this cultural background of the era that he's representing. He gives insight to the musical scene of 1977 UK. And he's also really setting the diverse personalities that will be seen in Young Soul Rebels. You know, and especially like the fact that he brings in like soul and punk in this intermix of the beginning, it kind of already sets like the musical style in the era. And it's really intriguing what Julian will further do with this whole intermix of punk and soul that he relates to um, black and white and gay and straight that, I, that, he, that we'll be seeing further on. So honestly, the opening, like you, you can just breeze through it, but it actually says a lot more when you look into it. And I think that's so fascinating. 
Yeah, I loved this opening scene because, like you were saying, it was this mix of both punk and funk Mm -hmm. songs. And so we have this intermingling of these two different up and coming styles in, you know, British society, British culture Mm -hmm. at the time. And they were both very like counterculture to the mainstream culture in British society. And so even though they're two different ideologies, they're both working to this same uh, type of end. And so even though they're so different, they can commingle. And so I think it really, I agree, it really sets the tone for the type of um, overall message that we get throughout this film. Yeah. And then after we move on from this opening credits, we see an exterior shot of a London park at night where we see a young black man who we learn is Terry or TJ cruising through this park with his stereo um, playing Chris and Kaz's radio station, Soul Patrol. And as he's cruising in the park, he gets approached by a white man, his face turned from the camera and we see the audience watch as he lures TJ and then attacks him. Right. And so that's this murder of TJ, Terry James is the backdrop or like the central plot that the movie follows, even though we have different romantic plots, but it's the central plot that I think really drives in the message and the message Julian is really trying to bring. It's interesting because like the beginning with the opening credits, you think it's just going to be a movie about maybe like the music era of the Mm -hmm. 70s in UK or like some sort of like, you know, because as it's described, it's kind of described as a coming of age film, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, it's like a coming of age thriller. And we see that already from this Mm -hmm. very opening scene. Um, it's a, it's really interesting, the contrast, but I, I do enjoy it. Um, so like in the next few scenes or in this first act, we get a lot of, you know, we get the exposition of the film, we get involved into the world, we get involved into the characters, right? We're establishing our main characters and their personality. Um, I think to me, this is how I perceived it. You know, Chris, as we meet him, has a very more playful and airy personality. He's very colorful with his, and like, stylish with his clothing mm-hmm. um definitely more so than um Kaz's because I think Kaz is definitely more subdued and um a little bit more on the sensitive side mm-hmm. um that's how I saw it um between the two and I thought they were really they really balanced each other out um we especially see this um when they learn of TJ's death in the barbershop where you know I they're both definitely affected but then um, in the garage, we have Chris very focused on going to the Metro, um, trying to get a steady job as that's his main priority is getting steady income and making it into the mainstream with Metro radio station with their, um, with their sole personality station. Well, I think Kaz is still shook up by it and definitely more so than Chris. I don't know if you saw that. I, I definitely thought... Kaz was definitely more heartbroken by what happened and I don't know if that's because he's either more sensitive or because he has more of like a connection to TJ for being another black queer who was killed yeah yeah I think that is what really hits it is this difference because you know Chris is definitely focused on surviving and trying to make a name for himself and for their you know radio station but for Chris, for Cass, mm-hmm. this is something that's completely different because this is another black queer man. So it definitely puts into perspective the type of danger that his identity brings. And you can definitely see that he relates to TJ with this death. So that's why, mm-hmm. yeah, he's definitely more sensitive when it comes to finding out about his yeah. death. There was something else. There was something else that... I really wanted to bring up because when, you know, Chris goes and he goes to Metro for the first time, that's when he meets Tracy, who is his love interest played by Sophia Okonedo. And, you know, the, there's this queerness that I definitely wanted to bring up. Like, you know, how you were mentioning how Chris Mm -hmm. is, you know, definitely more playful. His style is a lot more, you know, um, I guess, flashy. And for me, I saw it as very effeminate. And so meeting Tracy Mm -hmm. for the first time, something that really stood out to me is she reminded me so much 
of the androgynous, you know, style icon, Grace Jones. And, you know, we have Tracy mm-hmm. with this like geometric updo and she has these broad shoulders. And I really love the compliment of her style and how she's introduced in the scene to the more effeminate and softer style of Chris. And there's just this queerness in at play with you know, their type of fashion and identity that they present themselves Mm -hmm. that I really loved and wanted to pick up on. And I see some type Mm -hmm. of queerness just in that type of representation also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like with your interpretation and us just talking about like the queer aspect of Chris, I think it just goes into the fact, I think that Julian is also trying to, you know, attack the whole box or gatekeeping um, yes. of sexuality again and I and even fashion and I love that yes I know gatekeeping is a huge point that we're going to get throughout this film I think it's one of the, the biggest points mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree of this film and mm-hmm. I completely agree you know it's like we can't put people into these different type of boxes and labels and he's doing this in even subtle ways with fashion and different attitudes of these characters that are very much, um, you know, the opposite of what we would expect from how they would be written by someone else. So yeah, I love it. You know, there's, there's this fluidity with all of these characters that they cannot be labeled a certain way. Like the next scene, we get into Chris's place where we see Kaz on his bed, just drowning in a bottle of whiskey, which I could wish I could drown in right yes. now, but I can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, because obviously we we see like Kaz still really affected by um, TJ's death. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in this scene, we're really getting an inkling of their relationship, a deeper inkling of their relationship. And also what I think was important about this scene is that, you know, we kind of learned that Chris is half white, you know, with his mom entering, it's not explicitly said, but you know, we, we are suggested Mm -hmm. this. His identity, his half black, half white identity Mm -hmm. is so important Mm -hmm. when we discuss gatekeeping and um, you know, who are the enemies in our Mm -hmm. society, his identity, you know, it's, really alluded to in the scene introducing Anne as his mom but it has Mm -hmm. such an important focus when we get later into this film and then you know they leave and before Mm -hmm. they get to the rave they have a confrontation with three skinheads and so these these skinheads they pop up throughout the film and they're like the neo-nazi symbolism that we have on the wall spray painted you know they're constantly a presence Mm -hmm. within this film Mm -hmm. and so the characters are big z sparky and kelly Mm -hmm. some fun names but (laughs) you know they are constantly hanging around where chris and kaz are at and you know they're confronting them nothing ever really builds up to violence between them with these scenes because they have a lot of shared history mm-hmm. but you know they're just this constant presence of this type of skinhead national front neo-nazi fascist mm-hmm. type of ideology that we have throughout this film and you know they're these tangible people who are causing issues for chris and Kaz and these other characters and so you know, we see them throughout, but, you know, of course they start to cause trouble with Chris and Kaz while they're on their way to this rave that they're going to. Mm -hmm. You know, we get from this scene where it's a very kind of divisive environment, you know, between skinheads, these skinheads who have like this kind of punk radical style um, versus, you know, to Chris and Kaz, the soul style, you know, we get this very divisive environment outside, right? Mm-hmm. And then we move into the rave scene where it's just, it's the complete opposite. We have, you know, we have everything being meshed together in a commingling of styles and race and sexuality in this rave, in this club that um, Chris and Kaz are DJing. And so I just wanted to pull up because I was reading the script for the movie. Um, so like Julian writes in the description, um, that it's a young mixed crowd 50% black 50% white mixed gay and straight male and female punk and soul um so I thought that was really interesting he goes on to say most of the white 
crowds are punks. The punks stand around the edges like clumps of decaying flowers. So that, that, that last bit, I think Julian was just trying to make a little like shade towards the punk movement dying. Um, but like, uh-huh. uh, but the whole like main point of that, I, that I like his description and like his intention of writing the scene was that this was a space where everyone was coming together, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the imagery of clumps of decaying <laughs> flowers. Like I, I love that. And we have all these younger people in this grave and we do have this commingling of punk and soul. And, you know, we have different types of couples, you know, the camera pans to a gay couple who are kissing and we have men and women dancing together, men and men, women and women dancing together. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just this whole different diverse group of people. And I really liked just what it represented and it felt very transgressive to Mm -hmm. show these different types of ideologies that are able to really coexist in the Mm -hmm. same type of environment. And, you know, it's this younger generation, they are partying in harmony and Mm -hmm. it just, it feels like it's a really, you know, positive outlook on the future by focusing on how the younger generation can really commingle, bring their different types of ideologies and styles together Mm -hmm. and really have this type of cohesive environment. No, I definitely, I definitely saw that. You know, I I also saw it again, like as like, you know, going against the whole gatekeeping, you know, going against the whole like assumptions like, oh, like, oh no, only punks are supposed to, listen to punk music you can't listen to anything else you can't mosh pit to anything else you can't mosh pit to reggae and you know but then like we see them like kind of like moshing to like funk music and i love that you know like this scene definitely like it's the lighter scenes one of the lighter scenes of the film that definitely sheds light to hope that you know you know or like it sheds light to what our society could be you know we could just be like having Mm -hmm. a good time like not caring about who's like messing around or like what style or we're wearing or who what we're listening to it's definitely again like again it's like especially with chris and kaz as the djs of this rave um it definitely shows again the bridging between two communities that you know that society really likes to try to keep separate you know so this this scene was just Mm -hmm. i agree it gives hope to what we could be and it also introduces the type of relationship we'll find between Chris mm-hmm. and Tracy it really introduces them as a romantic pair, as mm-hmm. well as introducing the character of Billy, such yes. a very interesting character and what he represents in this film and the whole scheme of, um, you know, privilege and gatekeeping and his type of ideology and um, then his relationship with Kaz. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can definitely see this as the type of start to where Kaz and Chris start to diverge in their relationship and their different storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of like that pivotal moment for the movie, for these relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We definitely see that at the end of the club scene where, you know, like, because uh, like we learned that Tracy, she's fed up as a PA at her job and she offers uh, Chris, she's like, Chris, bring in a tape tomorrow and I'll get you like the hookup. Right. And so like at the end of the scene, we see, you know, Chris and Kaz loading up their equipment, ready to leave after having a successful and fun night. And then like Chris is like, hey, I need to get these tapes or I record these tapes for something right and like Kaz is like what are you up to like I know you're up to something and you see like Kaz is really annoyed because he knows that like Chris is you know doing going to Metro again and Chris um you know just doesn't tell him and Kaz is annoyed and drives off you know like this is again like I agree this is where we're getting them the tension between their relationship really breaking them apart and as like Chris moves towards Tracy um Kaz will move towards Billy but then, uh, so going back to, like I said, to the radio station scene, we have this confrontation where Dave is like, oh, but, you know, I, I need you to play some music. And then Chris is like, oh, so you need me to play English music, you know? So we have this clash between, like, Dave wanting 
Chris to pander to a more patriotic and white audience where Chris is very against that and saying, you know, no, like I'm one of a kind. I'm unique. You know, I'm a black soul brother who wants to play only this type of music and doesn't want to, um, you know, doesn't want to back and pander to an audience that doesn't back me up, you know. And I think this scene really embodies how the entertainment industry, the music industry, you know, they really neglect minority representation and voices in favor of, you know, for the mainstream and for white heteronormative audiences. And and so we especially see this um, when Tracy, you know, Tracy gets mad at him and she's like, you're an idiot. You're an arrogant idiot. Like, I just gave you an into the industry and you just couldn't let go of your your own like pride right you know i i understood both sides but like you know we get to this scene where she brings chris into this cramped office room and we learn that this is where jeff kane's office is and jeff kane is part of metro station and um we see him early on he's like this radio dj black radio dj figure that chris looks up to right he's like the only um, radio station that plays soul music and you know Chris is trying to aspire to that right but we see when Tracy brings him into this office room it's like it's this dark dusty and like bare office room and she just says this is where they keep him you know she, she throws a box filled with like I think fan meals and some record um, records and some papers and it's like this is his work in five years you know and she goes he is you know, he's a great DJ. He's been here for five years making a name for himself. And yet every three months they make him sign a contract. You know, again, this is showing how um, racial minorities and minorities are are in the entertainment industry, how they're treated, you know, how they're constantly held at a different standard that has to make them work harder. And yet they're still not on the same playing level as you know, artists who are doing the exact same legwork they're doing. And, you know, I, I really did enjoy that scene for um, trying to point that out. So, yeah, I, I really love this scene, too. And I think it really evokes what, you know, Isaac Julian really feels about how to get into British popular culture, how to, you know, stake a claim in it and what minority groups have to do. Like they have to pander to that type of popular culture, that mainstream culture, because at the time it's like black music was defined as this type of like island, you know, type of Caribbean type of style of music. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I, I think is discussed in the film where it's like, okay, this is what they expect. This is what they expect from our type of music. But that's not how we identify ourselves. You know, we identify ourselves through funk. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of music we play. That's the kind of music that we want to play. But that is not what is expected of them from this mainstream white British society. And so I just really loved how Chris, you know, just stood by his guns, you know, he told Dave exactly why his his reasoning was wrong, you know, basically telling him that, yeah, you know, this is the problem with, you know, mainstream culture, mainstream society. And mm-hmm. yeah, even though Chris blows it, you know, he retains his dignity, he retains his identity. And it, it was very, very transgressive. Mm-hmm. And I really love the scene for being able to provide that, that Julian was able, that he provided that type of commentary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we feel um, Chris's anger as he's like running out of Metro and like he literally like smashes that, um, what is it, that that cardboard cutout of Queen Elizabeth just waving and, you know, like he smashes I it. <laughs> I loved it too. Like, I, and, you know, like we just get a shot where like instead of waving, she just has like this, downward motion that's just completely erratic and weird and we know it's like it's another statement that julian is making again where it's like you know funk the jubilee fuck you know like kind of fuck the system um and then further on like we get more of this we get um where we get uh we get to one of the most pivotal scenes um in my opinion of this film uh the interrogation scene so um 
Yeah. So, you know, after, you know, Metro, that scene at Metro and Chris leaves. Now, what happened before this is there was another scene where the killer is being shown from behind. He's being shot from behind and he's calling and giving an anonymous tip to alert the police that he saw a suspicious figure at the park where TJ was murdered. And he gives Chris's name and says that Chris should be considered a suspect. So then, you know, we have this anonymous tip that's given to the police who, you know, it's a perfect match for someone that they would love to, you know, bring in and charge with this murder because of how they view Chris and Cass's radio show. And after that interrogation at the, at the auto shop. So of course, Chris would be the perfect person to try and pin this on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after Chris leaves, he goes to the park and he needs to, you know, de-stress from that scene at Metro and the confrontation with Tracy and Dave. And so he goes there, he lays down at the park and among all these other people. And then the cops show up all surround him and decide to bring him in. So I know this is one of your favorite stylistic shots when we enter into the police headquarters. Yes. So, I mean, then the whole entire interrogation, the cinematography in the scene and the lighting is to me, my favorite. Yeah. I love the opening shot of the scene because, you know, we just get a still shot of their shoes, you know, and we have, you know, we see the police officers, their shiny black shoes. And then we have Chris's shoes with his very vibrant pink socks that are like just standing out against this, you know, they're cl- these pink socks are clashing against this bleak environment. You know, this very mm-hmm. like grayish blue um, scene that we're in. And you just see these pink socks that are just standing out. And um, just briefly, if I can talk about the cinematography, I just love the shot where, you know, we're hold on to like kind of like a medium close-up shot of Chris on the side on the profile I believe and then they're like you're here charged for murder and then the camera you know it just pans back and rotates until it's like we get a full frontal view of Chris's reaction and I personally I just really love that type that shot and I love how Mm -hmm. fluid it felt and you know and and it kind of like you know, I, we're really getting into Chris's head and his mentality of where he is. You know, at first, Chris yeah. is this very exuberant and lively person, you know, who kind of like he's just been on about Metro and, you know, trying to get into Metro. But then all of a sudden we really get into his head where he's like, oh, you know, like, fuck, like, I'm here being charged for murder. I'm here being accused of murder. Mm-hmm. I don't have a phone call. They're not giving me my damn phone call. And we really get into this place where as the, the actor really kind of, he really does a great job in his performance of bringing out this fear and anger in this interrogation scene. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really do enjoy the scene from the cinematography and from, you know, um, Valentine Noniela's performance. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I love this scene too. I love that shot. You know, I think we really are brought into this experience with Chris with that, with that circular shot there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're getting into his psychology and really understanding, you know, the weight of what he's going to be facing. And, you know, throughout this entire interrogation, these cops are slinging slurs at him Mm And they're treating him like he is this murder of TJ. And it just, it brought back all of these horrible emotions of just feeling completely powerless and trapped because we could see where this scene could go, where they're just going to pin this murder on Chris, this innocent black man. And he is going to have to face you know, criminal charges face the consequences of something that he did not do Mm -hmm. just because they want to close the case. He was offered up to them as an anonymous tip. And the only reason is because Chris received this cassette player that TJ had that had this incriminating tape where the murderer was recorded. 
um, killing TJ. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we see throughout the film where, you know, Chris is trying to figure out, you know, whose voice this is trying to figure out, you know, what happened to TJ. And so he's been chosen because first of all, he is a black man, but also because he is being set up for having this piece of information. And I think there's one part that really complexifies this interrogation and it's when the cops bring up Chris's race and they bring up him being half black, half white using these derogatory slurs and they turn him into this other, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like they ask him, you know, how could you do this to one of your own? And then they say, well, you know, since you're not like, since you're half cast, I believe that's what they say, Mm -hmm. you know, then it must be okay that you can kill you know, another black person because he's half white and half black. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think it really speaks to how if one person does not conform to a specific identity, if they can't, you know, mingle into an all white type of space, if they can't find their identity in an all black type of space, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, where does that leave them? And then how does it make them easier to be targeted if they're outside of the majority group, if they're stuck within this one identity where they can't fit in, then does that make them an easier target for these types of wrongful, um, of being accused of a Mm -hmm. crime, you know, of being the victims of these wrongful accusations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it really speaks to identity and gatekeeping and what happens when someone is outside of a majority group. And I, I just really felt like it complexified the scene. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree. And, you know, like uh, we also see this in the upcoming scene. Um, you know, I think I think it's really great that Julian put this back to back because in the next scene, you know, at the auto shop scene, we have the same type of heated conversation about identity and gatekeeping and, you know, um, that slur half cast that's thrown out. Um, and if users don't know what half cast means, it's, um, it typically just refers to someone who is of mixed race. Um, but yeah, we get into the next scene where we get into the auto shop where we have this confrontation with Kaz and, um, and Carlton and Davis about kind of along the line, the same thing. Um, but I think in this scene, we get homosexuality of queer identity thrown into the mix, which really, you know, again, I think having these back to back, Julian is really kind of like making criticism towards identity politics. Yeah. It's really solidified with these back to back scenes. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was one thing we noticed where at the beginning of the scene of the auto shop, you know, there's Ken who is there, who's looking to buy a car. So we're, we're seeing Ken again and he takes this car out for a test drive and he comes back and he sees Carlton taking a shower in full view of everyone. You know, there's mm-hmm. this beautiful black body who is being put on display. He's taking a shower, you know, cleaning the grease off of him. And we have Ken who's, you know, continuing this conversation, discussing the car, but he's clearly watching Carlton. And I know you saw something of contempt on mm-hmm. Ken's face. And I saw something of a type of repressed desire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we can see that these two go hand in hand, right? Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I certainly saw the contempt on his face, but I can agree with the repressed desire, especially knowing, you know, revealing that he was the killer in the beginning and how he was acting with TJ, you know? So I can definitely see that. And, you know, we also hear, but I think for me, I think I'm more rooted into his expression being more on the contemptuous side. But again, like, as we said, they go hand in hand, but I definitely saw it more like him on the contemptuous side, because, you know, when they're talking about the possible who killed TJ, you know, you hear Ken, um, he goes, he's like, nah, I think it's the NF, you know, like, he's clearly being like, really shade like snarky about it because like he's the killer and he's going no it's nf it's national front you know because he's associated he he associates himself with national front so i think that's the only reason because of my knowledge about that why i see 
his look being more contemptuous than being repressed but you know if i would definitely want to go into that more of like um how they go hand in hand and you know this repressed homosexual desire that ken might have later on because i do see that as well yeah and so Mm. Ken leaves, and I think Ken being there really brought to the idea of, okay, who could the killer be? Who could have killed TJ? And so, you know, Kaz doesn't want to specifically say that it could be a white man. You know, he's kind of defending that type of um, belief, that type of mindset, especially Mm -hmm. because he's getting involved with Billy. And so, you know, we have this discussion between him and his brother and Davis and, you know, Carlton and Davis, they definitely feel betrayed by Kaz. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's like, how could you say that? You know, how could you think that, you know, one of us could have killed TJ? You know, it's like, why are you Mm -hmm. messing around with white people? And so Kaz immediately understands that what they're getting at is him being involved with white men and so Kaz confronts them and says white men you know he makes it pointed that he is involved with white men which is something that his brother and Davis you know just cannot deal with they cannot discuss you know they're like basically saying it's it's filthy you know it's like that's unnatural when um Kaz specifies white man um what's interesting is that Davis you know he he kind of recoils back in disgust. And then I think Carlton Cass's brother goes, as long as you're the one doing it to yeah. them. I saw it as, you know, another kind of like power move where it's like, as long as the white man isn't the one dominating over the black man again, as long as the one, you're the aggressor mm-hmm. in the relationship, Carlton saw it as okay. That's how I saw it. I don't know if you saw yeah. it that way. No, I did too. And, you know, I think where Carlton is looking at it is out of a, a place of anger and hate, you know, which is very mm-hmm. understandable. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it gets to this point where they have this conversation where, you know, the question becomes, who are we in the community allowed to hate? You know, we have these black mm-hmm. men who are very mistrusting of authority and white men because of all of this history, obviously. And so it's like, okay, do they want to believe that they're the ones behind this murder of TJ because there's all of this hatred, you know, we can hate them and we can penetrate them sexually because at least mm-hmm. we're being the aggressors, you know, we're taking that aggression out, but we can't allow them to do that to us because of what they've continuously done to us in the past. And so then mm-hmm. Kaz mentions that TJ was a queer man also, that that is, that he was in the same type of situation what that led to him dying because he was a queer man. And it's like, does his death mm. still matter now that he's revealed to be queer? And we don't really get mm. a clear answer from Carlton and Davis. And mm-hmm. we have to think if they do still care about his death, what are the purposes? Is it necropolitics where his death still matters to a community because of how he looks and we just ignore that he's a queer man, you know? And so it really brings up these interesting questions about identity and, you know, who we're allowed to hate, who's allowed within our community where we're banded together. And it definitely goes back to that scene at the police headquarters during the interrogation where they talk about, okay, where does Chris belong if he's half black and half white? And how does that make him a perfect target? You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. how does that make TJ and Cass perfect targets because of their blackness and their queerness where they are not able to fit into specific communities because of another part of their identity. So we're looking at Mm -hmm. intersectionality with identities And what are those levels of tolerance when one embodies different identities that are reviled by the different communities that their identities represent? I think it also goes on to like, we get these two different divisive mentalities with Carlton, especially where he goes like when he confronts um, Kaz, when he goes like, you know, the problem with you is that I don't know what side you're on, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And again, like we're bringing back to like the whole gatekeeping and community that really like Julian's really trying to like, you know, have a is really criticizing and trying to dismantle this whole like you have to be on this side or you have to be on this side. If you're not on this side, then you're not with us. And then you're with the you're with the oppressor. You know, it's like I really enjoyed these scenes back to back. You know, it's very heavy, but then it's like it's very necessary. And it's what makes this film transgressive because of the intersectional identities that julian is bringing in in both these scenes you know and i love because like you know we we rarely like today we do but like before back then we rarely had a conversation about the intersection about race class and um sexuality and i think julian you know Mm -hmm. marvelously does this in this film in both of these scenes and we'll see that and how that goes along with gatekeeping. He really solidifies that intersectionality and gatekeeping when we get to the scene after next. So Cass and Billy decide to take to the streets and they're having this night out together. And they end up at this very exclusive looking gay club where the bouncers look like dressed up dandies and um, they get there and there's two black men who are in front of them and they're having issues getting in and the bouncers you know are saying you know this is gay night only you know you're not allowed in and the two black men are saying but we are gay you know we are gay and then they make up another excuse the bouncers do about how it's only members allowed and the Obviously, we're, we don't see them, but before there must have been some white gays who were in front of them mm. who didn't have membership cards. And so these two black men say, well, those two men didn't have membership cards, but the bouncers are like, oh, well, we know them. And so obviously we can see that even though this is a gay club, this is not a space for black men. And so mm-hmm. Billy pipes up and he says, well, I'm a member. Here's my member card. You know, I'm allowed to have gas. And so since it's a white gay man who's speaking, they decide, okay, we'll, we'll just let it go. Mm-hmm. And the two black men are allowed to enter. But before Billy and Kaz are allowed to enter, the bouncers say, if there's any issues, then we'll ram this membership card down your throat. So it's made pretty clear that even though this is a gay club, it is definitely unwelcome to black men and anyone who supports them. I like how there's a visual representation of a space, you know, with the whole and like visual representation of gatekeeping with the, you know, with the bodyguards keeping um, Kaz, Billy and other, the two other two black gay men from coming in. Um, And I wanted to say how like, as you were saying about like how Kaz going in realizing this isn't his space and how when he goes out, when he makes out with Billy in front of those two guards, you know, that's still not his space because you hear um, the guards, you know, in disgust whisper disgusting to them, you know, and it's like, and when you think about it, going back to the auto shop, that's not his space either. So it's like, what space do black queer men and women have and then to me when i thought about the scene i i you know i think about about it going on a deeper level you know of just how how do what about black trans women trans people you know how they face gatekeeping on a whole entire like you know on a on a more in my opinion on a very more aggressive and volatile level than mm-hmm. what we see in the scene yeah you know it's like there is a huge problem, and I, I love that Julian is really attacking it about the gay community. You know, we're supposed to be this community that's, you know, that's supposed to be open to all, you know, that that's it's supposed to be safe space for all those who are queer. And yet, you know, we're having this racially charged moment where, you know, Kaz is like, where do I even belong, you know? You know, the yeah. I'm black and queer, but both of my communities won't take me. You know, they're not offering yeah. me a place to feel safe. And, you know, I thought that was really important. And, you know, because to me, I am also tying it back to, you know, trans people because it's it's like it's on a whole new level, you know. And yeah, I, I really obviously that's not this type of movie. But, you know, I think it's important to discuss that, you know, today it's like, you know, when we talk about Black lives matters and we need to also talk about Black trans lives that matter. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we then move on to the next day. And this day we have different scenes that really interweave mm-hmm. um, because we have the killer who's revealed to Chris. And we also have the su- the Silver Jubilee celebration. So this is the day of all the celebrations mm-hmm. and where they're going to have the funk, the Jubilee concert in the park. So we have all of this that's going to be culminating. And so we really start out with Kaz and Billy who are going throughout this celebration in the street where they're having all of these, you know, very nationalistic type of displays and booths set up to sell stuff that are in commemoration of Queen Elizabeth. You know, it's this huge celebration and everyone's attending and you know, Billy finds it the perfect time to push his type of like anti-fascist socialist type of views. And so he's going around, you know, just dis- distributing flyers and literature. And, you know, we were talking about privilege earlier and, you know, Billy is being so very much in everyone's faces and, you know, really disrupting this type of situation and we can see that it makes Kaz very uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. he can't do the same thing without you know fear of repercussions while Billy is able to do this without any issue and so we see Mm -hmm. Kaz really standing back and not joining Billy while Billy is getting into all of these minor altercations with other people and so, mm-hmm. yeah, it was necessary for him to get hurt because now hopefully he can really understand that. And I think it, it really helps bridge to the next scene between him and Kaz. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens next is, you know, Kaz goes and takes care of Billy. He takes Billy back to Billy's apartment, home, wherever. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this scene where it's the sex scene between Kaz and Billy where they both... Um, sexually pleasure each other separately. You know, Mm -hmm. I thought that this along with the gay club scene really helped cement Young Soul Rebels as a strong entry into the new queer cinema movement, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's this very explicit queer sex scene. And this queer sex, it just feels so revolutionary, you know, because it, it felt like a type of defiance against the racist and homophobic assaults that mm-hmm. these two were facing in the scene previously at, at the Silver Jubilee celebration. And, you know, with Billy not being immune to this type of assault, the same bigotry that's, you know, happened to Kaz, it's like they're able to bond, you know, he's they're able to be on the same type of level and really understand each other with with this type of discrimination that Kaz's face is that Billy is really starting to understand on a personal level. It really allows the type of relationship that they have to grow and mm-hmm. it really allows their sex to become much more politically charged. Especially he's bringing the whole unification of punk and soul together um through billy and kaz which i also love you know uh, especially because as we were were talking about how like both punk and soul are kind of like kind of rebellious type of music counterculture type of music i think both music styles kind of they both are attacking you know the systems that oppress them right um and i like the unification um and embodiment through kaz and billy and how it's like you know let's just come together and work together rather than um, you know, trying to stay in our, in our own groups, you know, again, like I think through Billy and Kaz, we're getting Julian also saying, you know, like, let's stop with all this gatekeeping and let's just come together, you know? Yes. Yeah. It really brings back that scene at the rave, you know, it, mm-hmm. it really solidifies that what, you know, Julian is trying to evoke with this film. It's like enough of the gatekeeping brought together, mm-hmm. you know, the rave everyone's together you know mm-hmm. the youth are able to you know coexist and party together and then the scene with these two where they're mm-hmm. able to share in this sexual experience and you know they just put their own beliefs aside to come together and mm-hmm. combine mm-hmm. we get into the garage where we have uh chris who's he's in a very emotional state right um, and he's doing the Funk the Jubilee segment, but without Kaz. 
pouring his heart out and ends up like crying on this um in the middle of this um radio station um and then we get all of a sudden you know as he's having this really intense emotional moment we have you know the killer who we all knew um find out to be ken who ken comes up and you know strangles chris from behind um i definitely to me i wasn't surprised it was ken um, even upon my first viewing, only because of how much Ken was in every single, like, scene in a way. You know, like, Ken is just, like, this kind of, like, weird, isolated guy who can be perceived as, you know, someone who's next door to you. Um, from the way how I perceive how he's dressed and um, how his manners were throughout the film. And it's, like, I think the whole point of that was to say, you know, like, you know, the person who... Is the most volatile, most racist, and homophobic can be the person that you least suspect who's living right next door to you. And that's how I saw his characterization. You know, when I was considering him, it's like he never felt like he belonged in any of these spaces. And he really felt like such an outsider. And, you know, we've been talking about gatekeeping and people who are excluded because they don't fit into one specific category and one specific identity. And it's like, with Ken, it felt like that was exactly the same case with him, but it turned him into this very radical, murdering type of person. And it's just really interesting to think of gatekeeping and that type of exclusion in society to what type of person that creates. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I saw as more as he was excluding himself from these groups because, you know, he's hanging out with in the beginning scene. We see him. The first scene we see him is like he's, you know, he's lingering around the skinheads. You know, he can easily be a part of them as we know that he has National Front ideology, but he chooses not to. And this could also stem to the fact that, you know, it's the skinheads, um, as Kaz said, where like they're just all talk and show, but they're no they won't actually do anything radical. And, you know, I feel like Ken kind of knew that and which is why he didn't want to associate himself with, the, with that, because his his beliefs are certainly, you know, more radical and they're more they're more detrimental and more aggressive um, as I see it. And so I felt Ken was purposely, he was purposely excluding himself. Because, you know, when we talk about gatekeeping, I feel like, you know, how I see it, it's like, you know, the community is excluding you and because of this, but, you know, you're not actively excluding yourself. Whereas I felt like Ken was actively excluding himself for from these spaces. And also throughout, like, as I've mentioned, like, you know, Throughout the movie, we see him in all these different spaces that he's able to go in. You know, he's able to weave himself in and choose to be part of that space. But, you know, instead he's invading it and purposely attacking it. So I, to me, I didn't necessarily see him being excluded, but I definitely see what you mean as well about how being an outsider and being excluded can, because I definitely agree, can foster this kind of radical and, you know, serial killer or like a dangerous mentality. That's interesting because, you know, I really agree with that too, because, you know, especially with him choosing to exclude himself because he really embodies, you know, in a very deceptive way of mm -hmm. this type of fascist, racist, and homophobic ideology. And he recognizes that, you know, the three skinheads that we've seen throughout this film, you know, they're more performative, you know, that they're... Mm -hmm attaching themselves to this ideology because it looks good. It's something that, you know, they can agree with, but it's not something that they necessarily, you know, believe in as passionately as Ken does. And, you know, so it's like what you mentioned earlier, where Chris and Cass were talking about them possibly being the murderers of TJ. And it's like, they're all talk. And it's like, well, definitely Ken is not all talk. And that's why he doesn't mm -hmm. associate with them because, you know, they're not they don't represent the same ideology that he does. And I think we really see that again when Chris is able to escape from Ken. He's able to escape the attack from him and runs away. And he's looking for Kaz. You know, he's trying to find his person, his safe person. And, you know, he's running through the streets. And there's this really great scene that I love 
of Chris running in slow motion, and it's the voiceover of Queen Elizabeth's speech at her Silver Jubilee. And like all we pick out from you know the dialogue of her voiceover is at the Silver Jubilee of 1935, and at my coronation, the Empire and the Commonwealth came to London. The traveling is in both directions, and I think we can claim to be doing our fair share. You know, it's like I really wanted to, you know, analyze like the choice that Julia made with including that specific dialogue, you know, including it in the first place, and you know, just you know, having it as this voiceover, this backdrop to Chris running away. Mm -hmm. I also think what's really interesting because you know he's running through a really empty area of where the Jubilee event was, you know. I think it also adds on just of how the mise-en-scene and how everything was set up adds on to like the whole separation, you know, and like how, you know, obviously the queen's voice is being, you know, we don't see it. It's just a voiceover. And, you know, we can automatically assume because she's she's addressing a white audience, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not there at the space where Chris is. And to me, again, this because I'm relating this back to what's going on today. And it's like how I see is Trump, you know, he's like his audience is, you know, you know, white people and white racist people. And, you know, it's like, this movie is just so relevant for us to watch today in America, I think. I know. It is. I know. That's what we can say. It's like, I really wish it was available here, you know, right now, because I think so many people need to see this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, so, you know, he's running through the streets and he runs into the skinheads, Chris does, Mm -hmm. and he confronts them. And, you know, we really see by their actions that they're not the type of people who, you know, they they promote this horrible ideology and you know their promotion has very negative consequences and has negative effects but you know we see you know just like the point we were making with ken who actually takes action versus these three who don't you know it's like the way that chris is able to interact with them you know looking for kaz that you know they're not going to harm him you know that you know they have to understand that the people that they're aligned with are actually causing you know, actual harm. They're actually killing people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah. it, it was just, it was interesting to understand Ken in relation mm-hmm. to them. And yeah, again, like it just goes back how like, you know, they're all talk, you know, they're not, um, they're not like Ken who actually, you know, acts on his racist belief, but like um, Chris, like, you know, he grabs Kelly and he's like, why are you lying? And why are you hiding all the time? You know, they're both fucking with us or, um, Again, I'm, I'm kind of improving the lines, but they, you know they were both messing with us back at the station. You know, so why are you, um, you know, why are you doing this? Ken was the one who killed TJ. So are you really gonna like? Are you saying you're? Are you with this man? And you know, Kelly kind of backpedals and he's like, No, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see him. You know, again, so it's like I really think this adds on to, again, that dynamic we were talking about. So I agree. Yeah. And so then we get to this big climax where everyone, mm-hmm. you know, congregates to the Funk the Jubilee uh, concert at the park. And, you know, Billy and Kaz are trying to set up for this concert. And they have this huge park filled with people. And it's also intermingled with National Front, you know, neo-Nazi fascists who are there who want to cause trouble. And so mm-hmm. they've infiltrated the park and this group of people who are there for the concert. And they start causing chaos. They start, you know, riling up the crowd and... Um, attacking people, trying to get the crowd to disperse chaotically. And there's police there who are monitoring it, but they know exactly what's going on and they're choosing to stand by and allow it to happen, which I think we can definitely relate to a lot of things that are happening today with, you know, a lot of these alt-right groups who are, you know, who Trump wants to monitor the polls, who are out at... Um, who are out at protests, you know, you know, making sure that the peace is being upheld and, you know, the police, you know, allowed to happen. And then it culminated with, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse killing two individuals and the police allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think we can see a lot of, you know, some connections between this type of action and what we've seen throughout history in these types of events and something that's very 
you know, something that's very topical of what's happening in the United States today. I definitely agree with that. You know, Young Soul Rebels really hones in onto these complex issues that other new queer cinema films neglect, you know, because other new queer cinema films, uh, as we mentioned before, really focuses on the aid crisis and um, focuses on from a white queer um, perspective, you know, um, and which is why Young Soul Rebels is just, it's, it's transgressive. You know, that's one of the things that makes new queer cinema is its transgressiveness. And Isaac Julian does this with Young Soul Rebels, with how transgressive he is about confronting um, a system that ha- has continually oppressed him from on a racial level and on a on his on a queer level yeah yeah with his discussions on gatekeeping identity especially with black identity black queer identity this really makes young soul Mm -hmm. rebels such a very important entry into the new queer cinema movement so that wraps up our final season with isaac julian's young soul rebels Young Soul Rebels remains a new queer cinema classic with its transgressive themes and representation of Black queer identity. Julian's criticism on the racism and gatekeeping in and out of queer spaces is a conversation that continues to be addressed today. And only through these conversations, through activism, can we begin to dismantle the continuous othering and exclusionist behaviors in our communities. With Young Soul Rebels being our last episode to queer QE's first season, we wanted to make a statement on the necessity to continue to resist oppression today, to remain vigilant in the way our governments try to silence minorities, and to continue to be just as transgressive like the films we have discussed this season. Please go out and vote. And if you're not of voting age, please continue to be active and knowledgeable of the tenuous time we're in as a democracy. That being said, please stay tuned for our next season where we will be discussing queer women in cinema and the way they shaped important discussions of gender and race within the queer community as well. Thank you for joining Nick and I on this journey. Stay safe and stay queer.